Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. Welcome to another exciting episode of Once for All Delivered. I am Andrew Smith. I am Caleb Castro. So we come to you, we're recording this in the middle of one of the biggest weeks in Satanism in recent history, and with one of our co-hosts being in Iowa as well, where Satanism is having its biggest week in recent memory. And so we're not going to talk about that at all. We're going to completely talk about something else with someone else. That's right. Yes. So if any of uh, the old Bobcast listeners remember, uh, we actually did a, an episode kind of when we were working on doing some other topics besides just Bob Inc. We were starting to branch out from there, leading to Once We're All Delivered. At that time, we had I was a student in seminary and uh, we brought on one of my peers from seminary and we had spoken about the biblical theology of the day of the Lord. Well, we have brought on now no longer my peer in seminary, but a peer in the ministry in the URCNA, Reverend Aaron Vanderheiden. Hi, Aaron. Hey, guys. How's it going? Well, not bad. Aaron uh, decided that he didn't want to stay in the United States when he uh, finished up seminary. He's now um, the uh, minister at the URCNA in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Yeah, so you, you went back to Canada. I had to go home, man. You got to go home. It'd deport you. <laughs> Our last several guests we have had on the show have all been Canadians, so I guess we're just right. staying in character here. We're staying in, in Canada. Well, we're going to be talking about another biblical theological topic of uh, the command that we see throughout Scripture of fear not or do not be afraid. This was actually uh, an idea that Aaron had came up to his mind a couple weeks ago when we were talking about what sort of things to discuss. Aaron, what sort of things went through your mind when you uh, pitched that? It kind of came up organically. You know, I, I often debrief with my wife on the sermons that I'm planning on preaching, anticipating a Lord's Day and stuff like that. And I was talking, I, I forget what the text was. It might have been something on Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. This is a while ago. And we were just kind of going through the passage and sort of talking about what I was going to preach on. And the conversation kind of stemmed to really analyzing this command of fear not. And we were just curious, how often does this command show up? And through our discussion and some Googling and stuff like that, we discovered that this is actually one of the most common commands, if not the most common command given in all of scripture. And ever since then, I've, I've thought often about the pastoral implications of that, the comfort for believers, some of the theological things that spill out. And so when Caleb sort of asked if I would be on this podcast, we had another topic in mind that fell through. And then I thought, hey, I'll throw this out there and see if it's something that Caleb and Andrew want to discuss, just the two of them. And then they asked me to join in on it. So I'm happy to share what limited knowledge I have, but it's just something I've mostly been curious about and have wanted to discuss for a while. And I use it in my sermons from time to time, say, hey, this is one of the most common commands given in Scripture, and that's important for us to think about. Yeah, and in kind of preparing for this, I had seen reference that there's 365 commands with this command. I'm not sure that's actually accurate, and I, I didn't take a full tally of how many with the exact phrase, 
but uh, I did pull up a list of some 51 texts. We're not going to go through all of them today, of course, but just a couple of the key ones and we, we can refer to some of them. We want to look at basically today, what sort of context do these come up in? And then what does that tell us for the command fear not? What does it mean then oftentimes when it's being used in scripture? And then what are those kind of theological implications that Aaron was talking about? So we're going to begin here actually with uh, the first instance where it comes up in scripture in Genesis chapter 15, verse one. I'll read that here. Genesis 15, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So this is obviously a covenantal passage here. There's a similar one, uh, Genesis 21, 17. The angel of God calls out to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Referring to, of course, Ishmael. Genesis 26, 24. The Lord appeared to Isaac the same night. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Genesis 46, 3. Speaking to Joseph, he reminds Joseph that I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you uh, into a great nation there. You get similar passages that come up in, in Exodus 14, 13, Exodus 20, 20, Deuteronomy 1, 21, Deuteronomy 3, 22, Deuteronomy 20, verse 3, 31, 6. These passages where the Lord is speaking to his covenant people, telling them, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, oftentimes in relation to their enemies, so in the case of bondage of slavery in Egypt, in preparing to go out and fight against other nations in the conquest. So then there's passages uh, where this is referred to in Joshua, uh, Joshua 1.9, Joshua 8.1, Joshua 10.25. So it comes up in the conquest. It comes up in uh, Elijah speaking to the widow who was afraid of death, that she's going to starve and die with her son. And yet uh, Elijah says, yeah, don't fear, make a small cake. Trust in the Lord to basically sustain you. In caring for one of his prophets. You have it come up in First Chronicles 22.13 and 28.20 in reference to David. Moving on a little bit, Isaiah. So Isaiah 41.10, 41.13, and 41.14. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying, Fear not, I will help you. In 41.14, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you. Says the Lord and your Redeemer, so the covenant name and then calling himself Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And for good measure, Isaiah 43.1, But now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. So we have quite an interesting stretch of passages there. Again, there are plenty more that we have from Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Daniel, and so on. But that gives kind of just a quick overview there of some interesting passages where this comes up. Uh, what are some of those uh, initial thoughts you might have in those? I do think it is fascinating, all of the different kinds of situations in which you see uh, this command to fear not like I've been preaching for well, a little over a year now through Genesis. And so even of these examples in Genesis, so like Genesis 15, the placement of this text in Genesis 15, one, it's really fascinating. It comes right after Abraham has been given victory in battle 
against the kings of the east. And this is right after uh, he had met with the king of Sodom and refused to take his bounty. And then he had also met with Melchizedek, king of Salem, the sort of a typological priest king figure uh, that comes and has a covenantal meal, it seems, with Abraham. So as far as immediate concerns with Abraham in Genesis 15, it doesn't seem that he has that much to fear. He would have overcome any of his immediate objects of fear in that victory that God gave him. But then if you go on in the text, you find that he's thinking more of the long-term concerns and those fears. He has no heir. He has no one to inherit, no one through whom God is going to fulfill the covenant blessings and promises that he has made. And the thing is, there's nothing in the immediate preceding context that indicates that Abraham has said anything about that. And yet he's clearly thinking about it. And God searches his heart and comes to him to confirm and establish that he will bring his covenant word to pass. And then the later text with Hagar, it is a more immediate concern. She and Ishmael have been banished into the wilderness Their provisions are gone. Uh, Their water is gone, which in the desert is pretty important. And then God appears to her and says, fear not. God is going to help her still in that situation. And and then all these other texts, too. I mean, you see all these differences. Um, Genesis 46, Jacob is... Uh, now learned that Joseph is alive. He's contemplating going to Egypt. He's been told that he, he's been invited to come to Egypt and God is telling him that he can and that he should go to Egypt. And so, uh, yeah, the different kinds of concerns and situations of life at which God comes to his people and gives this command to fear not. It's a, it's very broad and very all encompassing to all the sorts of fears in life we can have, it seems. Yeah. And I, I think that is kind of where my mind goes is that a lot of these commands, when you examine the context of them, what you find is the Lord has a very intimate understanding of the human mindset and the human condition in a sense where he, he condescends in this very, very compassionate way with these tender words of, of not to fear. I see that especially with Joshua. Mm. Joshua, he's young, he's been appointed to be Moses' successor, and everyone knows how great and substantial Moses is in the Old Testament. And not only does Joshua have to sort of fill Moses' boots in a way, but at the same time, he's the one who is supposed to lead the people into conquest in the promised land. I mean, you're, you're about to go against all kinds of pagan nations who, in Israel's eyes, the, Israel seemed like grasshoppers because there were giants living in the land of Canaan. I mean, this is a formidable people. And you can understand that even a great warrior like Joshua would have a significant amount of, of trepidation about entering into a, not just one or two battles, but numerous battles to drive out multiple nations. And yet the Lord comes to him with words that are full of compassion, says, I've appointed you for this task. The commander of the Lord's army has gone ahead of you. He's going to drive these nations out before you. I'm going to fight for you. And too, with, with the Isaiah passages, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, the, these passages come in, in the context of a lot of revelations of God's covenant, his, his plan and purpose for his people. And yet they're couched in these terms of incredible compassion and tenderness, which, again, I think shows that the Lord really understands that in a world full of sin and darkness, in some respects, humanly speaking, there are a lot of things to fear. But at the same time, with God on our side, with God giving us strength, with God fighting for us and helping us, ultimately, we have nothing to fear. And that's sort of what stands out to me with this whole 
litany of passages and there's so many more that we could have i mean we could spend an hour just citing the passages where mm-hmm. commands similar to this are are listed and given. Right. You both brought up a couple really interesting elements too there. Well, one, a lot of the references in Joshua are somewhat similar to the way Moses put them in uh, Deuteronomy 121, 322, and 23. They're very similar to Moses's words, such as uh, the Lord God has set the land before you, go up and possess it. Uh, Do not fear, do not be discouraged. You must not fear them for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. These are very similar to uh, what Joshua was saying. You get them in these very particular covenant passages, uh, mostly. And likewise, then, either before they're going up to go fight, you'll find a lot of these are tied with the word be strong, have strength. And even in the exile, uh, even in exilic passages, you're getting the promise that the Lord is not forsaking his covenant, really. Uh, Isaiah 35, 4, say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed. So again, very similar to uh, Moses in Deuteronomy and Joshua, for I am your God, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. The interesting thing with uh, the Isaiah 41.10 is you're getting this, that language, fear not for I am with you. That's the Emmanuel name, right? He says, fear not, Emmanuel. He's saying, I am your God. This being the non-covenantal name here, I am your God, uh, talking about what is owed in terms of the obedience due to him. And yet it's also the, it often comes in, in context of covenant passage. I am your God, you shall be my people. So he's, he's claiming his lordship, his ownership over them and that he will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So his hand of power, the right hand being a power and his, his sovereignty over the earth. You will not be put to shame. But Isaiah 41, 14 he says, fear not you worm Jacob. So that phrase worm, it sounds kind of mean in a sense, but uh, you could find that same phrase in Psalm 22, 6, uh, in Job 25, 6. The worm is a symbol of something that is weak, like, right? A worm could something that could be crushed in an instant by anything bigger than it. It could be swallowed up by a bird or whatever. So he's calling Jacob on the one hand uh, in Israel, a worm, weak, uh, powerless. And yet he's saying, I will strengthen you because I will be with you. I will, you know, do not be dismayed. I will help you. I will uphold you. He's promising his his power and his presence in salvation. I think another aspect of that, too, and you, you mentioned that passage, Isaiah 35, 4, uh, brings this out. It applies in all of these situations to a point, but we've been talking a lot about the human aspect of the fear. But there is also the aspect of fear that arises from the fact that we are fallen and sinful people. Mm-hmm. And whenever God... Uh, comes into the presence of uh, fallen and sinful people as a perfect and holy and righteous and just God. That itself is a cause and occasion for fear mm-hmm. because, you know, according to strict justice, according to what we deserve, a righteous and holy God comes to sinful people. We deserve to be destroyed. We deserve to be consumed. We deserve to be the object of vengeance as Isaiah 35, 4 brings out. And yet, uh, in these cases where God is telling his people to fear not, he is saying of himself that he is coming in peace. He is not coming mm-hmm. uh, to give us what we deserve 
or to do us any ill or harm as he rightly could because of who he is and because of who we are. Uh, No, he's coming in peace. He's coming in grace to meet with us and to help us. That's an interesting thing when you go into then the instances where this comes up in the prophets, the latter prophets. So as they are in exile or have gone through exile or there's still a remnant in exile that must be brought back, you get in Haggai 2, 5, that kind of language, this reminder that he is their covenant. So, so they're in the midst of punishment and trial. They're thinking the Lord has forgotten them or they're never going to be restored to him. And Haggai 2, 5, God reminds them he's the one who covenanted with them when he came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And this is when, you know, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple uh, in Ezekiel. Yeah, he's saying, my spirit remains among you, do not fear. Or uh, just one more instance, Zechariah 8.13, it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, cursed because the land was devastated, they were they were sacked. The view from the pagan nations is, oh, their God has forsaken them. The Lord says, O house of Judah, just as you were a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. This goes back to then Exodus twenty twenty, where uh, if you think about the context there, the Lord had, you know, delivered the law and in the prologue, he, you know, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the house of bondage, right? Out of, out of slavery in Egypt. And after he gives the 10 words, the 10 commandments, the people trembled and they're, they're telling uh, Moses, hey, you know, uh, you go up on the mountain and talk with him because we're afraid, well, you know, you go to him lest we die. And Moses responds in 2020, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So what do you do with that, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the irony of it, right? Is do not fear, but fear is mm-hmm. sort of the, that's given there, right? Like, like, don't be afraid. Instead, fear the Lord, because there's there's a vast difference between being afraid and fearing the Lord. I think it's, it's Michael Reeves who has written a fantastic mm-hmm. book. It's called Rejoice and Tremble uh, on what the fear of the Lord is. And so there's a distinction we need to make between being afraid of, of external forces and, and the powers of darkness and things of that nature, while at the same time having a reverence and awe and a wonder and marvel at not only the power and, and grandeur and majesty of our God, but also his incredible grace and compassion. Uh, and sort of maintaining that balance. So there's there's a command that is given all over Scripture not to be afraid of things, but there's also a command given in Scripture to fear the Lord, and that's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge as we read in Proverbs. So there's I, I suppose there's there's an important distinction there that that needs to be made: fearing things and fearing the Lord. One is inappropriate for God's people. One is entirely appropriate for God's people. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. It's almost like uh, if we put stock and fear in created things uh, in which the Lord is sovereign, has control over all things. It's almost, to put it a little strong, uh, it's almost an idolatry, right? Putting stock in uh, as though created things can destroy us, can have really any sway over us. In fact, I, it's Michael Reeves, I think, actually, uh, if I remember right, he, he puts the fear of the Lord rather than just reverence and awe. He, he defines it something as a delight in the Lord. A delight in understanding, a delight in wisdom, a delight in rest, a delight in his power. And this is something that we see then especially emerge in the New Testament, where a lot of those promises, right? We are talking about uh, Isaiah 41. We're talking about, uh, right, I, I am with you. Uh, I will save you. So a lot of these were coming up in covenant passages in the Old Testament, 
and restoration and salvation and conquest. In the New Testament, we, we get a little bit more of a peek then into the fulfillment of those things or what was spoken of all along. Matthew one twenty, and then I'll come back to Matthew in a second, but uh, Luke one thirteen and Luke one thirty to 31, the first couple instances of do not be afraid or fear not come in the broader context of the nativity narratives of Christ's birth and including also the one who prepares the way for the Christ, John the Baptist. In Matthew 10, 26 and 28 to 31, though, we get a really big passage on fear not. So this is Christ in his ministry. He's just sending out here. He's about to send out the uh, disciples to go and witness and to proclaim the kingdom, to teach and to to heal and cast out demons. Uh, he warns of how people will be nonetheless against them. Jesus says, therefore, do not fear them for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that Matthew 10 passage to me to sort of bridge the the Old Testament passages with the New Testament passages. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In the context of the, the passage in Haggai and the passages in Zechariah that we mentioned, not only was this a are these post-exilic passages, but at the time the the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the reconstituted people of Israel, are trying to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, and they are being ridiculed and opposed by all kinds of external forces. In fact, in Ezra chapter five, you read that it was Haggai and Zechariah who prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel. So God sends Haggai and Zechariah to encourage his people and to tell them, don't fear your opposition. And if you relate that to the Matthew 10 passage, you could sort of say, don't fear those who oppose you because they can only kill the body. They can't kill the soul. They don't affect your standing before God as his chosen reconstituted people. And then in Matthew 10, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The Lord has such an intimate care for us. So yes, marvel wonder, find awe, comfort, rest, and blessing in the knowledge of who God is and in the fear of the Lord. And because you have a profound fear of the Lord, don't be afraid of those who oppose you. Now, it comes up in John, where Jesus tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble and tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome Mm -hmm. the world. It's not explicitly a command, do not fear, but the idea of take heart, I have overcome the world A command not to fear is for sure implied in those words. And and so it's the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of who we are in Christ Jesus, the assurance of salvation that prompts God's people to recognize that. As the hymn says, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And in Christ alone, we talk about no, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We have nothing to fear because we belong to the Lord, and we belong to the Lord because he's fulfilled all of his covenant promises in the personal work of Jesus. And and that's the hope in in which we rest and find comfort when we deal with life in a world that is just full of sin and immorality and darkness and moral decay. You have the parallel from Matthew 10 uh, in Luke 12, and this takes us actually to 
two to three texts here that I think are related uh, before we go into the confessional section here. Luke 12, 32 continues on, do not fear you are more value than many sparrows. The Lord says, do not fear little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And in John 12, 15, the triumphal entry uh, where the, everyone is, you know, shouting, uh, the big crowd is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? That save us, right? Save, oh, please save us. As he's coming into the city, them thinking that, this, you know, this is a political restoration. John twelve fifteen says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus is riding in on the donkey. It's interesting that, that uh, John cites this. Uh, this is uh, Zechariah 9, 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In Zechariah 9, 9, uh, the phrase is rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You get an interesting tie between that concept then of fear not and rejoice. So we see that the nature of the rejoicing is that the Christ is coming in. John adds a note in twelve sixteen. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, referring to Zechariah 9, 9, had been written about him and had been done to him. There's uh, ties then with the kingdom, uh, with, with the nature of salvation in the person and work of Christ, as Aaron said. And you get a couple other instances, actually. John 14, 27, Jesus ties it to peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. First Peter three fourteen. even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And then the last two instances in scripture where this is used, Revelation 1.17 and Revelation 2.10. John, when I saw him, the vision of, of the Son of Man, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand, again, the right hand of power, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And Revelation 2.10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, speaking to the church at Smyrna. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So now we get these contexts then, aside from just the kingdom and now, but now persevering through suffering, persevering in peace, the nature of the suffering of the church. This ties us back to then like to, to Deuteronomy and Joshua, where you had conquest passages, right? And fighting against enemies. Here in these latter portions of the New Testament, the fear not comes up in portions of persevering in the church for the sake of the kingdom. So the question is, what do we do with these kind of passages? What sort of theological import from uh, and from the confessions do we have here? Well, actually, just before we get to the confessions, I know you really want to get there, but uh, I think it's it's really interesting that early in the book of Acts, before Pentecost, you you find the disciples quite fearful. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they've locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews. Um, I have that correct. And then after Pentecost, you get this incredible contrast where in Acts 5, the apostles are arrested, they're beaten, they're told not to preach anymore. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then in Acts 5.41, we read, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were mm. counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So mm. you see the contrast where there's these disciples, and certainly during the life and ministry of Jesus, there's this ignorance, there's this fear, there's this trepidation. They don't really know what's going on. They all desert him at his arrest in Gethsemane. And then after Pentecost, you've got them even rejoicing 
that they're suffering because they belong to Jesus. Paul and Silas in Philippi are singing hymns, singing songs of praise to God while their feet are shackled in a prison cell. Mm. There's just this this freedom and this joy that comes when we recognize our status and standing in Christ Jesus. And you find that that very thing right in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to Jesus, mm. that we're not our own, that we've, you know, we've all of our sins have been paid for with his precious blood. He's delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head apart from our father's will. In fact, everything works together for our salvation. It, it reminds me of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Mm. If God saved us in Christ Jesus, and if you're a Christian, you believe that he has, ultimately, you have nothing to be afraid of. Now, that's a whole lot easier said and done when we still deal with our fallen sinful nature from time to time. But the reality is that our lives are secure in Christ Jesus, that we belong to him, and there's a joy and a peace, uh, a shalom and a wholeness that that comes with that knowledge that I think is just words don't even do justice to how peace bringing and freeing that concept can become if we really ponder who we now are in Christ Jesus. Mm. I think also, uh, particularly the end of question and answer, one of the Heidelberg Uh, Where it says, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life, makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And this also ties into what you said about about Acts, about uh, I actually just uh, this last week uh, preached John chapter 20 and where they were locked away for fear of the Jews. So what changes between there and these later passages where they're rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer and praising God in a prison cell and things like that? Well, we have Pentecost. We have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them, which, you know, the Holy Spirit comes to all believers who have faith in Christ. And uh, so what this tells us as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, because we often think of the various uh, roles and functions that the Holy Spirit has in our lives, including, you know, our sanctification and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But we also see here a connection uh, that uh, one of the blessings of the Holy Spirit that we have is that the Holy Spirit lives in us and indwells us in such a way to drive out fear, to protect us and to keep us from fear whereas we otherwise might be inclined to do so. I won't cite all of them. We go through quite a number of uh, word states on this, uh, word state in terms of the providence of God, uh, who rules by almighty ever-present power, uh, upholding us with his hand in all things. Even in question answer 28, you know, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Because we remember that this was his plans all along. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. For the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, which we remember that love is shown and revealed through Christ Jesus. But uh, Lord's Day 12, question answer 31, why is he called the Christ meaning anointed? In the section of that it says, yeah, well, he's our eternal king. So he governs us by his word and spirit who guards and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. So that, that going right back into what you two are saying uh, even then of word and then spirit. This goes in further with um, remembering what it is that Christ uh, accomplished on the cross. Question answer 44 it asks, why does the creed add he descended into hell? Well, it says to assure me during attacks of deepest dread, 
fear, and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of the soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. That's where all this is rooted in. It's uh, Christ's person and work on the cross. I think that this ties in very much to our comfort in the judgment and the living and dead, Christ ruling over his his church by his Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. You could walk through the Apostles' Creed on all of this, basically. But in Belgic Confession 23, 24, and 26, there were some interesting phrases in there, I thought, that stated that the justification of sinners, Belgic Confession 23, we believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins, that man uh, is blessed to whom God grants righteousness apart from works. This work of justification covers all of our sins, makes us confident, it frees the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach. So it reorients us to a proper fear like uh, was being cited through Michael Reeves earlier. A fear not of man, not of sin, not of Satan, but of God. In that fear, it's not a dread or terror, but ultimately a, a real delight in God. One more phrase on Belgian Confession 24, sanctification of sinners, that being freed from the tyranny of the devil, being justified and being made a new man, uh, we can live in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, then so works within the believer that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for a God, but only out of love for themselves and a fear of being condemned. So without the word and spirit, without Christ and his spirit, we have a fear of ultimately God. We have an improper fear, a, a terror. We would always be in doubt, tossed back and forth without any certainty, and our poor consciences will be tormented constantly if they did not rest on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior. We can approach God without terror. A lot of this is to get rid of our fear and to see God as merciful and faithful. The commands to fear not, especially in the Old Testament, come to light here, and the covenantal nature where we can approach God on his holy mountain through a mediator, just like the people that cried out to Moses, hey, you go and talk to him lest we die. Well, we have a greater mediator in Jesus Christ who goes up to the holy mountain, who ascends the hill of the Lord on our behalf, uh, and who's, who sits at his right hand, uh, the right hand of power on the throne of heaven, and who intercedes for us. Um, who's who's purifying us by his Holy Spirit, who has justified us, the basis of all this, so that we wouldn't have to fear. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's that's sort of the the interesting contrast or, or juxtaposition or whatever word you want to use when you talk about the person and work of Christ Jesus, for those who have been chosen by God, for those who whom God has set his love upon, the person and work of Christ Jesus drives out any kind of fear of anything external any kind of enemy, any kind of negative stimulus that might come. I mean, Paul was so sure of his union and status with Christ Jesus that he can say in Philippians 1 that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, you look at how many people in our world fear death, and even people in the church fear death because they don't know if it's going to hurt. They don't know where they're going to end up. And Paul says, no, that's that's a gain for me because if I die— then I get to be with the Lord Jesus. And that's really the beauty of heaven is that we will be where Jesus is. But by contrast, if, if there is no faith in the Lord Jesus, if there is no resting in his finished and continuing work, then Christ and, and God himself are the most terrifying things in the mm -hmm. world. Because if you refuse to put your faith in Christ Jesus, when he comes back to judge the living and the dead, he's going to be your undoing. 
Mm. I mean, this, this stuff gets very, very real when you think about the eternal implications of it all. If you rest in Christ and his finished work, if you have a, a living, breathing faith in the Lord Jesus, you've nothing to be afraid of. But if you don't have a living, breathing faith in the Lord Jesus, you have everything to fear because he is coming back. And so the implications that that spill out of this whole idea of these commands not to be afraid are, are commands that are given exclusively to God's people. And commands to fear are, in a sense of being afraid, are, are, in a sense, commands given to those who do not belong to the Lord. This gets very real very quickly. But I think for believers, the idea of, of the fact that our God is with us, that he upholds us with his righteous right hand, that we are so secure in Christ Jesus that, that nothing will take us away from him, is the comfort that we need to spur us on to, to love and good works and to persevere when, when we see like the people of Judah and, and Haggai and Zechariah's day, opposition coming from almost every corner, it seems, at times. That's, that's a really good point, too. When we look at this in, in terms of the light of eternity, from, from providence, from the divine decree all the way to the eschaton, God has us firmly in his hand. And, you know, the psalmist asks, what can man do to me? Uh, why should we fear uh, enemies or even Satan? Uh, Belgian Confession 37 notes how, uh, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people, but it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect, since their total redemption will then be accomplished. They, the elect, will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, so open vindication. And they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world, while the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. Um, so that even at present, you know, those who are, uh, any who, who, who persecute the church, ultimately will be vindicated. There was no need to fear man in the end. Yeah, and bridge these two things together. Go to an Old Testament passage, Zephaniah chapter 3, which is a passage that speaks about the day of the Lord. <laughs> See, there's there's our connection. Uh, it, it's interesting. Zephaniah 3, a, a passage on the day of the Lord, verses 11 to 13. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, that faithful remnant that the Lord has preserved, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. It's a picture of the inheritance that is given to the people God has chosen. That when Jesus comes back, we will graze and lie down in green pastures, fulfillment of Psalm 23, and none shall make them afraid, because our redemption is secure in Christ now, but we will see the realization of that when he comes back. And, and that's really the beauty of it all is that if we are already now citizens of heaven, that's not going to change. It's just going to become a more fulsome reality when Christ returns. And so practically and pastorally, I mean, that should give all of us who are in Christ a great deal of comfort in this life, even despite whatever is going on in this world. And I mean, we can look around us and we mm -hmm. can see the world Satanists. is, well, yeah, the Satanists are, there we go. you know, in the state capital in Iowa and all the other various things that are going on in the world is just messed up in a lot of ways. 
And a lot of things are not going well for a lot of people, including a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, not only in our own nations, but around the world. And so it seems like there ought to be a lot of things that we could fear. And if we were, you know, according to our natural human inclinations, we may want to fear. Mm. And yet what we see in all of this biblical evidence and the theological conclusions that we can draw from it is that we don't need to fear. We don't have to fear. We can have a peace that passes all understanding, uh, you know, even though there's very scary and difficult and painful things in front of us. It's like fear's not driving us. Fear is not controlling us um, because we have the hope and the comfort and the joy in the Lord. And so, you know, and it can be difficult to do. We're all still inclined to turn aside to fear. But we have also so many reasons and such great reasons not to fear. And we ought to think often and pray often and meditate on these things and on these truths and let them uh, saturate our hearts and our minds. Uh, perhaps some uh, concluding passages here that really kind of put tie that what you just said, Andrew. We have reason not to fear. Philippians 4, 4 to 7, very well known. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, and remember how... Uh, in Zechariah 9, 9, it said, rejoice. You know, your king comes riding on a colt. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In 1 John four eighteen, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Second Timothy 1 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Is that, you know, as Andrew said before, humanly speaking, in some respects, we have everything to fear in a world of, of sin and, and opposition, even in a world of of disease and sickness and, you know, mental anguish, like anxiety and depression and, and things of that nature. Humanly speaking, from a purely objective horizontal standpoint, there's a lot of things to be afraid of mm-hmm. in a purely human mindset. But biblically speaking, the people of God, it sounds, it's easy to say in, in the West when there isn't direct persecution, when there isn't direct opposition, where the church doesn't have to go underground, where where people don't have to meet together in secret. It's it's easy to say, well, you know, you're secure in, in Christ, so so do not fear. But even if that's easy to say, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. That, that the more we recognize what Christ has done, who we are in him, that he now lives in our hearts, and he feared nothing as the king of the universe, you know, the, the more we recognize those things and meditate upon those things, the more we're given strength to face tomorrow, no matter what tomorrow might bring. There's, there's a really r- real comfort and peace that comes with this idea that we can say, as Paul says in Philippians 4, to rejoice always. And he even says, I'm going to say it again because you need mm. to hear this, <laughs> to rejoice and, and to consider yourself worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ and for the name of mm. Jesus. Because why would we expect peace and tranquility in this life if Christ suffered for his entire life and especially at the end? But it's, it's that understanding of what Jesus has done and who we are in him that, that, like I said, gives us the motivation and the strength to face tomorrow, not because we're so strong, but because God's grace is sufficient for us, because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Yeah, I will never leave nor forsake you. Like we had said again with Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Uh, it's truly the, the Emmanuel. 
you know, for the covenant people. We always have him uh, with us and we shall dwell in his midst forever. There's a shotgun approach in, in uh, drawing together a biblical theology of this command. Hopefully, I think very fruitful and uh, edifying. I suppose you could say there's a reason it comes up so frequently in scripture. Well, I think that's uh, all the time that we have there. You know, uh, Aaron, uh, we appreciate you coming back on. Hopefully we'll be able to do it again sometime soon and uh, go over some more topics. While we've still got you, Aaron, is there anything you'd like to plug or promote or let our listeners know about you or anything you're doing? Um, catching me off guard with that one. Then nothing comes to mind. How about your church? Remind our listeners where you're at and if they're maybe looking in the area or know somebody who is. Yeah, so we are in Abbotsford, B.C. The church is Emmanuel Covenant Reformed Church. This has been a church since I think the early 2000s. I've been here for about a year and a half. It's it's going really well. So if you find yourself in the lower mainland of, of B.C. near the Fraser River, uh, come check out Emmanuel Covenant Reformed Church. We're also planting a church in Armstrong, B.C., which is about four hours away. So, you know, prayer for the blessing on on that work and the growth of that church numerically and spiritually would be great as well. well excellent. Yeah, that's a good thing to be able to hear you again. And we thank you all for listening. And, uh, you know, if you have any questions, comments, criticisms, additional thoughts, concerns, uh, then you can e- uh, email us at uh, once for all podcast at gmail.com. Um, or you can send complaints directly to Andrew by mail, carrier pigeon, etc. Tell you what, if your pigeons can find me, then go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll uh, hope to catch you again next time. This was a pithy sign-off and etc. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once For All Delivered.